Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word, and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether it's right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forest, and cabins in the wood to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice, and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response is an owed to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable history as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or, in some cases, more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We'll look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them to this very day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Happy Halloween and welcome back, my good friends. Thank you for your time again today. I can think of no better topic for Halloween than monsters. When we think of a monster, most of us have our own ideas of just what a monster looks like. Most folks, I think, imagine their monster as something ugly and despicable to look at. And, well, that might be true. A true monster isn't really measured by their looks alone, but by their actions. I would venture to say that the more innocent looking they are, the more dangerous they can be. I read history and research the past so that we might learn how not to repeat our mistakes. With that comes a time where one reaches a point where you wonder just how bad some people can possibly be. You also think that well, quite possibly you've pretty much seen it all. That's when you get a wake-up call in the form of a monster that you couldn't even begin to understand. I use the word monster not because it sounds good, but it's the only fitting description of the story that I came across. So, go on in, make yourself to home, and let me tell you about the monster from Bristol. Fred Howard Coffey Jr. was born March 20th, 1945 in Bristol, Virginia to Fred Sr. and Pauline Coffey. The Coffeys were married in 1940 as Fred Sr. served in the Army during World War II. In fact, he was a career military man and retired from the military shortly after the war. By his and his family's own account, Fred Jr. and his sister Peggy Jean were both subjected to severe 
continuous, unending sexual abuse as children by their own father. And believe me, I use the term father in this case very loosely, because Fred Sr. was a notorious pedophile. Once Pauline found what he was doing and what he was up to, well, she just up and left and took the children with her. But it didn't take Fred Sr. long to find them and kidnap them. Once he had all of them in his grasp, he took them to a motel where he assaulted them both one at a time, making the other one watch. To beat all of that, he didn't just do it once. Every time they went back home and got comfortable, well, he did it several more times as they were growing up. Of course, it was a different time in our history and nothing was ever done because it was felt that the parents had rights to their children, pretty much no matter what. Fred Jr. would go on to graduate high school at the age of 16, which is a pretty good accomplishment, and enlist in the U.S. Navy by age 17. He served aboard the USS Caloosahatchee, based in Norfolk, Virginia. He served his second tour of duty in Vietnam and San Diego, California. He served his third enlistment back in Norfolk, Virginia, where he lived with his wife, Paula, who he'd just married a few years earlier. Fred served a total of 12 years in the U.S. Navy and was honorably discharged as a first-class petty officer. There are some accounts that state that he was an intelligence or operations specialist, while others state that he was trained in the medical field. Fred had intended to re-enlist for a fourth term in the service, but had civilian criminal charges pending in Virginia Beach, Virginia, for the abduction and indecent liberties with a 13-year-old girl who was the daughter of another Navy man, as well as indecent exposure with three different other children. That led to him being denied re-enlistment by the Navy, and he was subsequently convicted on two counts of child molestation in Virginia Beach. Apparently, that was about the same time his wife had her fill with him, and she left him. In April 1975, after being rejected for his fourth term in the Navy, he used his contacts in the Washington, Maryland, Virginia area to help him land a job with Vitro Laboratories, a defense contractor specializing in Navy weapon systems in Silver Spring, Maryland. As a computer analyst, he was then living in a motel in Maryland, so I guess he was probably, sure enough, some type of an operations specialist in the Navy. On July 24, 1975, a 15-year-old girl named Kathy Beatty had been in her home watching TV all day. She was resting up from a vacation that she had had with her and her sister and mother. Her mother, Pat, and her friend decided to drive over to Baltimore to watch the Maryland Lotto drawing. They left Kathy there, and her mother had given her permission to ride her bike while they were gone, but she just needed to be in by the time it got dark. Now, you may wonder why on earth somebody would drive to watch a lottery drawing. Well, you got to remember, it's the 1970s. There wasn't any Netflix, cell phones, or even home computers yet. So if you weren't into As the World Turns, The Edge of Night, or General Hospital, you listened to your favorite radio stations or found something else to do until Walter Cronkite went off and the TV shows came on. I remember it well. Anyway, when her mother returned home after dark she noticed right away that there was no lights on in the house and 
thought that would be very odd. But after all, there was a thunderstorm at the time, so maybe the power was out. Well, that wasn't the case. And Kathy was nowhere to be found, so her mother and friend went about searching for her. She checked everywhere that she thought Kathy would be in all of her usual places, and she didn't find anything. Pat's sister suggested that she check a place called the Hill where the local teens like to meet and hang out. Well, she went over there, and there's where she saw a police car circling the area, and she flagged it down. She explained to the officer that her daughter was missing, and the storm was so bad that she couldn't search for her. He told her to go on home and wait by the phone. If Kathy wasn't home by the morning, file a missing persons report. He said he would go up on the hill and look around, see if he could find anything. And Pat went home, sure enough, and sat by the phone. All right, she called everybody that she could think of to see if they'd seen her daughter. Absolutely nobody had seen her, so the next morning, Pat files a missing person report with the police department. Kathy's sister, Teresa, and her boyfriend decided that, well, they'd just go up on the hill and look around for themselves. And that's where they found Kathy. Her pants and shoes had been removed, and... She had a severe head wound, but, miraculously, she was still alive. She was rushed to the hospital where she lay in a coma for 11 days, and, well, she finally passed away from blood poisoning, of all things. It was found that she had been sexually assaulted, and witnesses last saw her walking toward her house from a local school. Oh, and it might be worth pointing out that Vitro Laboratories set directly across the street from where her body was found. And the very day that she was found, Fred Coffey Jr. called in to work to quit and have his final paycheck sent to him. Of course, he said that his wife and child that he really didn't have were in a terrible accident in West Virginia and he had to leave. Officially, Kathy's case remains unsolved, but Fred remains the only suspect they have. After leaving his job with Vitro Laboratories, Mr. Coffey surfaced in Norfolk, Virginia in October 1975, where he was charged twice with contributing to the delinquency of a minor, a 15-year-old girl. At this point, you really got to wonder just what it's going to take to get this monster off the streets. But by 1978, Fred was in Charlotte, North Carolina, remarried to his new wife, Edith. That's when Fred decided that he was Going back to school, he took classes at Central Piedmont Community College and took a job as an EMT. That's the emergency medical technician for those who may not know. They're the good folks that ride the ambulances out to rescue those in need of help. Fred and Edith lived in what were called Jamestown Apartment Complex. Jamestown Apartments were located next door to the Woodbury Hills Apartments where lived a 10-year-old Amanda Ray along with her mother. On July 17th, Amanda and her friend Jerry Martin went fishing in the creek behind the apartments. They did that many times. But this time they were approached there by a man with gray hair who talked to them briefly and then left and went into the Jamestown apartments. The next day, the same man was seen talking to Amanda by her babysitter near the swimming pool. And when the babysitter asked Amanda who the man was. She said, that's, uh, that's Fred. 
Amanda left the pool area after talking to Fred and called her mother at work to ask if she could go fishing with a nice old man that she had met. Of course, her mother said the same thing that all of us would. Absolutely not. So, Amanda returned to the pool area. Well, I suppose she was probably intending on swimming at this point in time. We have to remember that it's back in the 1970s when a child predator wasn't really a thing that people were scared of. I was around then, and sure enough, I can say that things like this just didn't seem to happen as much. Maybe they just didn't make the news. I don't know. People weren't aware of it as much, though, I can tell you that. A neighbor saw Amanda pick, come back to the pool, gather up all her stuff, and leave with a gray-haired man. On the way to go with the man, she saw her friend named Pamela Dowd and asked her if she wanted to go fishing with her. But Pamela saw the man sitting in his van and immediately said no. She watched as Amanda got into the van with the man. Later that day, a couple who were fishing at a nearby lake saw the man and the little girl fishing in a nearby lake. They saw the little girl sitting in a little chair while the man hovered around nearby her. About five o'clock or so, they saw the same man driving his van at a nearby intersection. They were able to get a really good look at him there. And unfortunately for everybody, we know what's coming, don't we? Or we wouldn't be here. Amanda was now missing, and there was a composite sketch released to the public of the person of interest in the case. Police received a call from a woman named Janet Ash. She told them that she believed the man to be a composite sketch of Fred Coffey, Jr. Now, Janet actually knew what she was talking about because she was the best friend of Fred's wife, Edith. Fred had babysat her daughter, Angel. She told police that she had in contact with Fred because Fred had masturbated right in front of her while he was supposed to be babysitting her. The girl was actually three years old. Fred told the little girl that he loved her, and that's what men do when they love somebody. <sighs> she also told the police that she had confronted Fred, who said that he was embarrassed and that he had never done anything like that before. Of course, he, <laughs> she told her that. Why not? And <clears throat> that he was deeply sorry for it. Fred agreed to seek counseling with her pastor and that if he agreed to do that, uh, that she wouldn't call the police. Now, he did indeed meet with Janet and the pastor and promised to get some more counseling. As we already knew was coming, Amanda's little body was found in the lake where she'd been seen fishing. Her autopsy showed that she had died from asphyxia or struggle or after a struggle. There were dog hair and blue fibers found on her body, which will come into play later. During the investigation into Amanda's murder, there were several assaults on little boys reported in the area. Also, after becoming the prime suspect in Amanda's murder, suddenly, without reason, well, Fred just up and dyed his hair dark brown. Folks, this guy's just getting started. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, in February of 1981, little Neely Smith was playing outside her home at the Jamestown Apartments. She knocked on a neighbor's door and asked if her friend could come out and play. Mother saw that Neely was soaked from the rain. It was falling outside and 
told her that her daughter couldn't come outside, but that she was welcome to come in and play. But Neely wanted to stay outside and play in the rain and said that she would just go find somebody to play with. Later that day, Neely became missing. Her family immediately called the police. It had only been 18 months since Amanda's murder, which happened right next door. There was a massive search. Well, that yielded nothing. Of course, police go to Fred Coffey Jr.'s apartment and interview him. During that interview, police officers noticed what they believed to be child porn in Fred's bedroom. Today, that would be an immediate trip downtown, but back then, the officers said that they weren't properly trained to be aware of the fact that he was breaking any laws. That was the straw that broke the, fam- the camel's back with Fred's wife, though. They were soon divorced, and Fred was batching it again. I guess he figured that he'd better make himself scarce around those parts, so he up and moved to Lenore, North Carolina, after just after that one happened. Neely's body was found about seven weeks after her disappearance. By that time, her poor little body was so decomposed that her cause of death couldn't even be determined. It wasn't long before Fred was charged in Lenore for molesting three different children in that area. Somehow, Fred found out that they had warrants for his arrest, and he once again skipped town. He was now back in his hometown of Bristol, Virginia, where he gets back to work. Not at a job. I mean, back to work in the other sense of the word. On August 6, 1986, Fred Coffey Jr. is seen as he pulls into the Estridge apartment complex in Bristol, where he is seen taking a metal detector out of his trunk. Around this time, eight-year-old Travis Shane King was watching TV. He'd been sick and was at home alone with his mother and grandmother when they ran out to get a part for her car because it was having some trouble. Shane was a good young man, and they had no problem leaving him there for a short while. When they got back, they found the front door locked and no Shane inside. They didn't waste a second. They immediately called the police, who also didn't waste a minute and began to search that included volunteers, police, and they even called in a helicopter. They searched till around 4 a.m. that morning, finding absolutely nothing. During the search, the entire neighborhood noticed that Fred Coffey Jr. stood in his front doorway in his underwear, watching the whole thing with a great big smile on his face. There were six witnesses who came forward to sign statements saying that they'd seen Fred with his metal detector leading little Shane into the woods nearby. There were descriptions given by Fred's, about Fred's car, including his license plate number. However, the investigation would get sidetracked with a new piece of information. That would be the fact that Shane's aunt and uncle had been smuggling cocaine into Bristol from Florida. Of course, the detectives couldn't let that one go. They had to follow that lead, which took the heat off Fred for a little while. Uh, Meanwhile, there was a composite sketch released in the newspapers of the prime suspect wanted in connection with the abduction of little Travis Shane King. The sketch went nationwide in the news media. Then, the worst thing happened. Some 30 miles away, in a lake located in Tennessee, little Shane's body was found. His autopsy showed that he had been strangled. There was no sexual assault found. He was just flat-out killed for no apparent reason other than to just satisfy the 
wanton needs of a monster, the one that did it. Folks, just because one leaves an area doesn't mean that the investigations stop. Police never stop when it comes to this stuff. So back in the Charlotte area, police saw the sketch that was released by the good law enforcement officers back in Bristol. They knew who it was, and they really dug into his background where they found that he had had a few slaps on the wrist, all for the same thing, molesting children. Remember when little Amanda Ray was found? Remember the hair and the blue fibers found on her body? Well, one smart detective decided to track down Fred's van that he had driven the day that Amanda went missing. And he went to talk to Fred's ex-wife, Edith, who still owned the dog that Fred used to ride around in his van with. He found out through her that Fred immediately got rid of his van following Amanda's murder. The detective was able to find the van, which had been purchased from Fred, but the one who owned it at the time had just parked it in his garage, really didn't need it, he just hadn't driven it. Now, that was thought of as a heck of a lucky break, but we in the mountains know what mountain karma looks like when we see it, don't we? The detective had the van analyzed and found dog hair and blue fibers that matched, man, matched those on Amanda's body. And it didn't take them long to hit the road to Bristol with a search warrant where they found more of the hair in Fred's own couch, which he had been so stupid as to bring with him back from North Carolina. All of it matched. At that point, Fred was taken into custody for the murder of Amanda Ray and for the molestation of the young boys and a girl that took place at the same time, or around the same time, I should say, more accurately. The monster went with them, but all the way back to Charlotte, he would all he would say was a smug look on his face was that you'll never prove anything. And while he never denied any of it, he was brought back to Caldwell County, North Carolina, where he pleaded guilty to nine counts of indecent liberties with a 12 and a 13-year-old brother and sister and another girl, and he was sentenced to 50 years in prison for that. He was convicted of first-degree murder for the abduction murder of a 10-year-old little Amanda Ray. Two juries sentenced him to death, but through legal maneuvering, a third jury sentenced him to life in prison and all sentenced it to run concurrently. The monster of Bristol has been eligible for parole since 1995. Fred Coffey Jr. is still being investigated as a suspect in the sexual assault and slaying of 15-year-old Kathy Lynn Beatty. There was another case that I hadn't mentioned before, too, but I remember it well when it happened. Fred is also a strongest suspect in the double abduction of the Lyon sisters in Wheaton, Maryland, which happened back in March of 1975. Police in North Carolina are trying to connect the monster to the murder of five-year-old Neely Smith from the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area as she was last seen with him. Fred Howard Coffey Jr. is currently serving a life term in a North Carolina prison. He has confessed to a psychologist as to having molested over a hundred children, and that information was actually admitted into evidence at his trial. He used gimmicks such as fishing poles, metal detectors, and disguises to lure children. This monster might get at to go free one day if the justice system works for him as it already has. Thank God in heaven that so far they've been able to keep him locked away, but 
Sometimes all it takes is one parole hearing to go a certain way, and he could just dance out the front door. We've talked about Mountain Karma before. Yeah, he may be better off staying right where he is for his own good. Now, I'm not insinuating a riot against him, or I'm not saying that any of the good Appalachian Mountain folk would or would or should do anything to him if he should get out. I'm just saying that we who live in these mountains know all too well that these mountains have a way of bringing karma for those who richly deserve it. And we've all seen it. May God bless the victims and the victims' families of any of these monsters that have, have done this to them. I hope our story wasn't too harsh for you today. Sometimes things just ain't pretty and they need to be told, as this one sure did. Please go over to our Patreon page at patreon.com, search Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend, give it a look over. We have uh, exclusive episodes there and early release ad-free episodes of upcoming. You can also support the podcast by clicking the link in the show notes. And one other thing, we've been added to iHeartRadio, and uh, maybe you'd go over there and give us a listen if you like. Maybe, I don't know if you can even follow or subscribe over there. I'm not sure exactly how all that works, because I am an IT expert, as all of you know. Or you can, you can go over to our Facebook group, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast, where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian murder mystery and legend. I'll see you then.